Last week, uh, Jake stumped me because I, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I, I got knocked back on my heels. Specifically, she asked, and it should have been a really easy question for me to answer. Um, and the question was, uh, how, do you, how do you explain how saying creeds in worship is an element of worship? Is there a passage that you can go to that says you should say the Nicene Creed or you should say the Apostles' Creed in worship? And I did not have a verse at the ready. And I found through some of my study before I came back this week that I feel really good because I feel really at one with the Reformers. Um, here's, here's the reason why I feel at one with the Reformers. Because the Reformers, if you read their writings, they're extremely committed to, and we have, still haven't even talked about it, I keep alluding to it. They're extremely committed to the regulative principle of worship. I'm going to go ahead and say what it is. It is that the word of God regulates our worship. In other words, the things that we do in worship ought to come from God's word. They need to be commanded by God. And if they're not commanded, then they ought to be omitted. And the question of whether we should say creeds in worship is totally fair. It's a fair question for her to ask. And I bet she thought she was giving me a softball. The re- Here was the th- no one ever gives me a question that they don't think will be a softball. That's why it's disappointing when I don't answer them. Um, but here's the thing. The reformers were very committed to the, to the regulative principle. And I wanted to make sure that this was true. I actually pulled this open and went to the back just to see, to make sure I wasn't insane. I might be insane, but not on this. And um, if you look through the orders of worship from Calvin, Bullwing, Bullingers, Wingley, um, Knox, Alasco, Ocalampadius, whose name just rolls off the tongue, Luther, Bootser, Cranmer, all of them, all of them use the Apostles' Creed. All of them. I, there might be one that's, that's not, that wasn't using the creeds. So think about it. All of these guys are using, the, they believe in the regulative principle and they believe in having creeds in worship. And in the work that I could do, I couldn't find them defending it. I couldn't find a place where they were like, here is why we have creeds in worship. Now, we know, at least not from a regulative principle perspective, and I think it's because no one was pressing on them and saying, hey, we shouldn't be having these creeds in worship. Um, because during the Reformation, their priority was making sure everybody understands that we are part of the small C Catholic church that's come before us. It's very important for us to confess these creeds. And um, so they didn't, as far as I know, they probably did, but I, don't, I can't find places where they defend the practice, and I think they simply assumed it. I think that they, to them it was second nature that, of course, we would confess the faith together. And so I, but I did a little bit more work, and so I have a little bit better of an argument to share with you guys. The best probably biblical passage I would take you to is Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Paul says something. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in this verse, Paul is commanding Christians to verbally, not just to yourself, but out loud, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he's also commanding us to actually believe it when we say it out loud. And when he tells us to do it out loud, he's telling us to do it in a corporate way, right? Not just to ourselves, but before other believers, maybe even before the unbelieving world. 
Um, and so when we tell another Christian, confess Jesus as Lord aloud, we're not binding the conscience. We're just doing something that God already calls us to do. He calls us to confess. Now, Johnny Gibson uh, does something in this book. He says something I want to read to you. He says, just as God made us to be liturgical creatures, so he made us to be confessing creatures. And just as in the fall, we did not cease to be liturgical creatures, right? We worship someone or something other than God. So also in the fall, we didn't cease to be creedal creatures. We confess someone or something other than God. Creeds, as with worship, are one of the foundational realities of human life. They are integral to worship and idolatry. So it's not whether or not we will confess our beliefs. It is who or what we will confess. For even those who have no creed but the Bible have just stated their creed. Moreover, as a pillar and buttress of the truth, the church has always been a confessing church. We confess our sins and we also confess our Savior. And so as soon as you answer the question, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? The answer you start to give is, is a creed. You're giving an answer to the question, who is Jesus? And so when you ask the question, with what words should we confess that Jesus is Lord? When you answer that, you are answering with forms, not elements. And so we talked about forms already. Forms need to be biblical, but it's the elements that need to be drawn from Scripture. Forms need to be in conformity with Scripture. And so... Um, we do things in, scripture, in, in the service all the time that aren't directly from the text of Scripture. For example, Don led us in prayer this morning. Those prayers that Don prayed, they were biblical in form, but the wording didn't all come from Scripture, right? He was, in, in other words, he was using human words to lead us to pray. And we do that with songs. We make sure that the content is biblical, but we don't, not every single song uses exact phrasing that comes from Scripture. Uh, and so the use of a creed in worship is very similar. Uh, it's a, it is a human statement that is a summary of what the scriptures say. Um, but the aspect of actually doing it publicly, saying a creed aloud, actually saying what we believe aloud uh, is something that we do see commanded in God's word. Yeah, Micah. Commending it in the scripture to be used by those churches. Mm -hmm. uh, so not only do we have blanket confession, but we actually have the use of creeds. Uh, yeah, and that was the only that was the thing that was the closest thing to an answer I started hinting at last week, and then I just kind of wimped out. So um, Johnny Gibson also says something else I want to read to you guys. He says this: A church that does not say the historic creeds on a regular basis is like a nation that doesn't remember her war for independence or her fight for freedom. She has forgotten where she has come from. She has forgotten who she is. She has despised her mother. For the great historic creeds are the wisdom of her mother passed down through the centuries and across the millennia. Ignorance can be excused to a point, but not ingratitude. Our mother church has left us with a rich inheritance, and we would do well to guard that deposit with thanksgiving. Um, so the simplest answer to why the regulative principle commands the use of ancient creeds in corporate worship is that in Scripture, God calls us to confess the truth against falsehood. And the creeds are one form of how we can do that. Um, by the way, there are good resources I would point you to. Um, one is, um, it's a, in Credo Magazine, there was an article called The Regulative Principle and Corporate Recitation of Creeds. I know it's a mouthful. By Samuel Parkinson. Um, he gives more arguments than I have here. Um, 
There's also a book by Samuel Miller called The Utility and Importance of Creeds. I have that in my office, but I didn't bring it out. Um, J.V. Fesco, um, one of the professors from RTS, he came on before or after I left, but Fesco is there at RTS now, and he wrote a book called The Need for Creeds Today. Um, I love Top Gun, so I wish he'd just call it The Need for Creeds, but he didn't do that. Um, and then there's a book by Carl Truman called The Creedal Imperative that's really, really very good as well. And I have a feeling there are other really good books as well. But those are three that I would mention. Yeah, Benjamin. As a segue to what Mike has said, couldn't you also consider the doxologies that Paul listed as creedal in one sense? And secondly, since we're talking about worship, what is being said in, in, the, in the creeds are truly worshiping God as well. Mm-hmm. As long as you, when you're declaring biblical truths aloud, then you're, you're worshiping. Um, so the, as far as the doxologies at the end, I, I only would, I would want to take them individually and look and see if Paul is quoting something that might be pre-existing there. And in Philippians, he uses language that indicates that what he's about to say, like in chapter two, comes from uh, a, a passed along statement that other people already know. Sometimes he does that, and it's possible that those doxologies at the end also are familiar to them, but I don't know that he always uses language indicating that this is something you already know. Um, But it does look like what the church is using, and you start to see this by the time of Paul, is that they're actually creating creeds, and they're learning them and memorizing them, and very likely setting them to music, singing them. Uh, we know very early on, although we're getting into old territory at this point, that they, were, they would take passages from the Gospels. Uh, for example, the song that Mary sings uh, when she accepts the, well, you know, when she, uh, um, her Magnificat. The early church took that and set it to music. Uh, we know that pretty early on as well. So anyway, I just wanted to uh, say, when you stump me, you should feel bad. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but always know, like, that's why I'm fine getting stuff because then, I, then I'm like, oh, wait, I should have been ready for that. So anyway, I'll come back with a vengeance the next week. Though. That, was, that was 10 minutes of vengeance. Um, but here's what we did last week, though. We talked about the elements of worship. We talked about the forms of worship. And then we, we, we looked at, we, we glanced at circumstances, and then I just didn't give you what you wanted. So... We still need to talk about the circumstances. So circumstances, remember all of this language is meant to help us think through what should be part of worship and what shouldn't be or what should be part of worship that we know from scripture and what are the things that we can do in worship that maybe can require human wisdom, but we don't need a biblical command. Like, do we need a biblical command for what the temperature in the room should be? That sort of thing. Uh, And so how do we sort through those things? Um, that's how we use, that's what this language is for. Elements, forms, circumstances. So the elements are the what of worship. The forms are the way of worship. And circumstances are the how. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I bet we won't get past this. I bet we won't get past the how. Um, because there's just so much here. The circumstances are, of worship are the incidental matters that have to be decided on. They're not optional. But we don't have specific scriptural commands. So, for example, what time to meet, right? What time should the worship service happen? Uh, What temperature should the thermostat be set at? Should the minister preach from a pad of paper, 
from an iPad, from memory, from an outline? Uh, Should we use pews or chairs? Should we be spending the whole service standing? Should we even have chairs? Um, In fact, let's just go down some rabbit trails. Let's talk about some some of these things. Let's talk about uh, the chairs. Until 1300, everyone in church stood for worship. Everyone stood for the whole service. Uh, In the 1300s, someone in the Western church was like, you know what? We could sit in the service. And I would just love to have been there when the guy standing next to him is like, you're insane, man. This place, this, they would tear this place down if we had chairs here. Um, <laughs> um, the Eastern Church still stands. Yes, Yanka. I was just yesterday talking about it. I, when I was young in our church in Holden, the men stood during the sermon. See, wow. And I don't know how that disappeared. But Did I'm they have chairs? Yeah. But they stood. The old men stood. All right, well. I seriously never knew that. Um, I will say we do not have chapter and verse on this. Um, We know that in Nehemiah 8, the people stood for the corporate reading of the word. Um, But that's a far cry from a command to stand through the whole service. What we know is that they did it. Um, I have a story here. Uh, St. Giles in Edinburgh, Scotland. They had folks standing even after the Reformation. They only installed seating for children and for the infirmed. So if you were not a child and you were not infirmed, then you stood through the service. Eventually, St. Giles installed pews, but it took a long time. And so if you wanted to sit, then even up into the 1600s, you had to bring your own chair. You had to bring your own stool to church. Could you imagine just people walking in here with stools to sit on? It's kind of a funny thought, but that's what they did. So uh, I'm going to tell you one of the most famous stories in Scottish church history, and it's the story of Jenny Geddes. Who knows the story of Jenny Geddes? Oh, perfect. Finally, I get to tell you guys something you don't know. So Jenny Geddes, Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, it's the 1630s. Um, William Laud, remember I told you no one loved William Laud except the Lord. William Laud's much-hated prayer book was first used in St. Giles Cathedral in Scotland. Jenny Geddes stood and threw her milking stool at the minister's head. Um, There is debate about what kind of stool Jenny Geddes threw. Was it a folding stool? Was it a three-legged stool? I I like to think that a three-legged stool would have better distance, that you could throw a three-legged stool in a way you couldn't throw a folding stool. But... The minister gets up and he reads from William Laud's prayer book and she stands and she is reported to have said in the thickest Scottish accent ever heard, which I will not attempt to mimic, the devil give you colic in your stomach, false thief. Dare you say the mass in my ear? I just imagine like this angry Scottish lady like screaming that and throwing her milking stool at this guy. Um, there is, there's, there was actually a riot in the room, like, because what she was doing was she was uncorking the bottle. Like the people were already very upset about the use of the book of common prayer in the, in the Scottish church. And the riot took place not because she was so magnetic of a charismatic of a personality or something like that. Uh, she seems pretty rough around the edges, actually someone that would be willing to do that. Um, so it wasn't like she led the riot, but she did uncork the bottle and uh, the, the place went crazy. 
And there is one event in the uh, history of the event that says there was a huge tumult in the cathedral. And here's what it says. The Bishop of Edinburgh took his place in the pulpit and solemnly commanded the winds and waves to be still. But no calm followed. (laughs) Uh, So in case you wonder how Jenny Geddes felt about the Book of Common Prayer. The reason the story is significant, though, is because people brought their own seats, including Jenny Geddes. Um, And it was probably after that where the churches were like, you know, we should use benches and bolt them to the floor. (laughs) Everyone's still... Imagine Jenny still wanting to sneak that stool in. (laughs) Um, Huh? It was William Lodge. Which was it? The William Lodge's... Well, William Laud and the Book of Common Prayer, they would have been the same thing, I believe. My understanding is that uh, Laud, the way that Laud introduced it, um, it was Laud who was behind using it in Scotland, specifically at this time. So, But anyway, the, 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 the reality is whether we sit or stand is a prudential decision, right? You're, just, you're not going to find a biblical command one way or the other. That's, that's an example of a circumstance of worship. How are we going to, to sit? Are we going to sit? Or how are we going to stand? How long are we going to stand? These are all circumstantial. Um, whether to have a bulletin. Have you been to churches? Raise your hand if you've been to a church without a bulletin. I've been to churches without bulletins. A few months ago, I worshipped at a church that didn't have a bulletin. I was as confused as an Amish electrician. Um, I was like... What is going on? What are we doing here? Um, uh, I hope that did. I hope that that wasn't mean, was it? Okay. I, I don't think. A, I hope an Amish person would have laughed at that. Um, it wasn't sinful that they didn't have bulletins, right? It's a circumstance of worship. Um, there's no verse that tells you, "Thou must writest out all of the service and." Um, you know, you do it for different reasons. It's it's helpful. People, in our case, in our case, one of the things I'm interested in is everybody taking their bulletins home home each week. Uh, I keep wanting to put stuff in there so that people have more reason to take it home. Right? You remember all the prayer requests if you take it home. You have family worship guides that are in there. Um, you have full texts of scripture written out so you always can read the Bible. Even if you lose your Bible for some reason, you could open one of our bulletins and read them. So you just a lot of Bible material, a lot of prayer material. You could almost use that book as your devotional material for the week. So, so we have, but those are all prudential reasons, right? God didn't say in his word, you must make sure to print out a bulletin. Um, whether to use big projector screens in the sanctuary. Um, I have many thoughts on this. None of them from the Bible. Um, that doesn't mean that we should be paralyzed. That doesn't mean that we don't do anything, right? You, you answer this with prudence and wisdom. And as you do with all circumstances of worship. Um, I would not tell another church what to do on this. But Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan have been huge impacts, have made huge impacts on me as far as reading their books and thinking about the subject of how the medium, the way that we take something in ends up affecting the way that we think through the very thing that we're supposed to be thinking through. Um, I, I actually, uh, I, wish, uh, I, I wish all Christians would read Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He has a lot of really important thoughts. Um, the book's a little dated, a lot of references to radio and television and how it's a brand newfangled thing, you know. 
Um, but a lot of what he has to say applies to internet and you know, the distractions that we surround ourselves with. Um, how we speak ends up affecting what we say and what is heard. And, and because of that, um, we have to take time to reckon with the unspoken ways that I think screens would impact us in our worship services. So this might be at least me giving you guys a speech about why I would not get excited about the idea of putting screens in here. Um, Americans in 2023 are perpetually distracted and bombarded by stimulation. We are overwhelmed. Uh, in my opinion, screens of all sorts contribute to that, no matter what the content that's on them, right? It's like catnip for a, a cat or it's like chocolate for a child. Um, when a screen is on, our eyes just go to it. Um, so for me, when I see a screen, it, whether it's in a church or whether it's in my hand, I mentally shift into a consumption mindset. I don't know how else to explain it. I, I'm in a consumption mindset when I see a screen. And there's nothing scientific or scriptural about that. Remember, I'm talking about just prudence here at this point. Um, but in church, I think we should be doing everyone in attendance the favor of removing potential distractions if we can. Now, there's a plus side to screens, right? You can put the lyrics up. You can keep people looking up instead of looking down. When people sing, they aren't singing into their books, right? They're singing uh, up and their mouths are going out and their voices are carrying. And it probably does help people to sing better, to stand and look at a screen. Um, but usually, I've very rarely have I ever, in fact, I don't know if I've ever been to a church that put the, the musical notes on the screen. So oftentimes, following along with the musical notes, people don't learn to, to read music at all because they don't have to. They just listen to the sort of the worship band or whoever's doing the music and they try to try to catch on. Uh, we sing challenging songs sometimes. And, you know, I hope you're thankful for the notes that are there. Even if you're not good at reading notes, you know the next note you're going to have to go up at least. And you can kind of feel your way through the song just by having those notes. Um, I put myself in that category, by the way. I learned to play the trumpet when I was young. Um, and so that still kind of helps me to, to mentally envision what a note sounds like. But um, I feel like I'm one of those people who stumbles through unknown songs by sort of looking at the notes. Um, so there are pluses to the screens, but you can't take your screen home to use in private and family worship. Um, there's more you could say, but, but there's no chapter and verse on this, right? We don't have uh, a, a scriptural passage that tells us one way or the other. It's a question of wisdom. It's a question of prudence. And it's not a question of good or evil. Um, a church that uses screens is not being disobedient to some specific command from the Lord. Uh, my best friend in the whole world, his church uses screens. Um, I hate it, but it isn't sin. Um, we can differ on it. Um, I, think, I think that is another perfect example of a circumstance in worship, right? Something that, that Christians might differ on, but that is ultimately something you have to do one way or the other. You have to do something. Um, here's another circumstance of worship. How long will the service be? Um, back in the Puritan era, services are three plus hours long. Uh, during prayers, the Puritans stood. They didn't want to kneel. They didn't want to seem Roman Catholic, so they stood during prayers. Um, at our church, we're about half that length, and we let you sit. So we're a very, very comfortable uh, bunch here. Uh, are we being biblically unfaithful because we're not going longer? Well, no, these things are ordered by the light of nature. 
Uh, we might be sinning if we neglected something, if we neglected some means of grace for uh, the sake of time. Um, I think I can say this. It's been long enough now. Uh, my last church, I got there, and on Sundays, I was asked at the Christmas time, there was going to be a Christmas cantata during the service, and uh, they asked me if I wanted to have a sermon that Sunday. And I was like, are you asking me if we should not have a sermon on sun- and Sunday morning worship? And they said, yeah, the last pastor said that he, didn't, he felt like he couldn't compete with the cantata. And so he wouldn't have a sermon on those specific Sundays. And I was like, you can't have a, a church service without a sermon. So we will have a sermon. Um, <laughs> but there are, there are some times where that kind of thing might happen, where some, something might be displaced that shouldn't be displaced. And I, and I would argue that a, a service without a sermon is, is a... Is, that would be an example of an element of worship being discarded for the sake of a circumstance or a form. John, were you going to raise your hand? Yeah. Just to jump in about the three-hour service, Puritans didn't have Sunday school. Okay. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Do we have a three-hour service? <laughs> With an extended greeting time in the middle? <laughs> Maybe we do. I'm starting to feel a little self-righteous already. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so here's another circumstance. Uh, I think I already mentioned this before. The temperature in the sanctuary. This is a hot button issue, right? It's, it, 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 it could be chilling if we get this one wrong. Yeah. I just, I'm, letting it, I'm, letting it, I'm letting it run through the system like a fever, you know. Um, Here's a circumstance. Uh, do we meet in a building? Do we meet on a hillside? Do we meet in a crypt below the streets of Rome? Do we meet in a strip mall? Where do we meet? Um, I actually have been reflecting a lot on the building, on the building where you meet. Uh, I don't know if any of you actually read the, the, the piece I wrote for our church website that, on the blog, just about reflecting on the place of worship, reflect, reflecting on decorations. But if you read that article, it's a mixture of wisdom, arguments from the light of nature, reflection on some broad scriptural principles. But again, the building where you actually meet, is, it's a circumstance, right? You, you're not going to find specific commands as far as the building. Um, here's another circumstance. What will the minister wear? Right? Presbyterian ministers for about 500 years have worn black robes. And that reflects the belief that they are not priests. Um, other Presbyterian ministers who aren't me wear a suit and tie when they preach. Um, others wear extremely casual clothing. That cl- casual clothing is meant to communicate something. The, it communicates that the minister is just another member of the church, right? It's a way of saying, I'm not a priest. I don't stand between you and God. Um, it's, you, I can see the positive in why somebody uh, doesn't wear uh, a robe, for example. Um, I tend to view the rope as a very happy middle ground. I prefer to communicate that something is different about the one who is handling the word of God and preaching. I would never want to communicate the idea that there's something priestly about the minister. Um, the black robe, uh, especially when it was instituted, was the robe of a teacher, the robe of someone who was an interpreter of a text. Um, it was a way of distinguishing themselves, distinguishing themselves from the priestly sacerdotal views of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, 
Practically speaking, very practically speaking, I love the robe because it helps me not to worry what I look like up in front of you all. Like when I do Sunday school, I'm just like, where do I put my hands? How do I stand? Where do I, do I grab the pulpit? No, I'm glad there's a pulpit here to grab. You know, you're, you're thinking about your gestures. You're thinking about your movements. You're thinking about uh, years ago, I got up to preach and uh, Aaron is gesturing to me, just wildly gesturing to me in the front uh, of the sanctuary. Um, boy, you guys are getting a really embarrassing story. <laughs> so he's gesturing to me wildly in the front. And I was just like, whatever. I don't, gonna, I don't know what she's doing, but it's weird. Uh, well, yeah, guess what? Your wife loves you. And if your fly is down, everyone, everyone knows it. If you're in front. And uh, guess why I love the robe? I love the robe. I, my... It is just such a bulwark against distraction, you know? An incredible blessing for all of us, you know? uh, I love the robe, and never since then, I've never gone a Sunday without it. Um, But, um, but. I should pay more attention to my wife. Well, if she was gesturing wildly, even right now, I'd. Yeah. <laughs> There's no good way to do it. I don't know what to say. Yeah, there's no... It's just all bad. But you know me, I do like tend to just talk and not like... I'm not too guarded. And I did ask a few trusted people in the church, did you notice this? And they all swore that they didn't. I think it was just because they loved me, but... Uh, Anyway, here's the thing I love about the robe. When I'm preaching, I'm just thinking about the word of God. I'm not worried about my, my, my looks. I'm not worried about my appearance. I'm not worried that I, I put on two pounds uh, in the last three weeks and I don't like how I feel about how I look. Like I'm just not thinking about how I look. And it's, that's wonderful. Um, I'm only thinking of the word of God or myself or my, yeah. John. Preaching with torn jeans and your shirt out. I, this is something I observed in Vancouver, a very large church on a Sunday service, and the pastor was dressed that way. As a means to do what? Yeah, oh, you mean so a more informal look for the preacher? Yeah, John, John was just asking, like, what are you trying to communicate if you wear torn jeans and, you know, more laid back clothing? What's that? Skinny jeans. Um, see, I don't pick on skinny jeans because all of my pants are skinny jeans. <laughs> Micah. You can understand someone's reasoning without thinking it's good. Yeah. Right? So you may well want to show people that you can come just as you are to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right? You may want to show someone that no matter what you dress like, you are welcome in this building. Mm-hmm. Now, they may put a priority on those things and forget that <clears throat> God is holy. And you should come before a holy God carefully. The whole Old Testament shows you the precise care needed to go before God. Mm-hmm. And, and that precise care came in Jesus perfectly going before God for us. Mm-hmm. So you can understand his argument, right? And he, he likely had reasons for doing it. And maybe he had... Bad reasons for doing it too, like he looks really hip. Uh, 
But you can understand someone's reasoning and understand why they made the decision for this circumstance and, and disagree with it, mm -hmm. right? And so Christian prudence and wisdom says, hey, Adam, don't wear ripped skinny jeans, and if you do, you'll talk to the elders. But... I was this close to wearing a t-shirt with an arcade cabinet on it today. Thanks. So now I'm not going to. Um, yeah, Elsa. Watch one movie. It's called The Jesus Revolution. It's about the Chuck Smith's church. So it's about the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, I saw that movie. The hippie Christians, they just came to the church and barefoot. And they just wear very casual, but they just have a very simple and pure heart to the God. Yeah. So I... I really don't think we, when we come to the church, we should, you know, wear the yeah. very formal suit or something. Yeah, I, I, I'm very appreciative, actually. I think our congregation, we, we have people show up, and there's pretty broad range, and no one's made to feel like dirt for how they dress. Mm -hmm. So you get to come in and wear a tie, thankfully. Uh, and then you can also come in wearing a T-shirt, and uh, it's like you don't get weird looks. So I, feel, I, I love the balance here at Evergreen. I really do. Um, that's also, by the way, another, another reason I love the robe because sometimes people look at the way the pastor dresses and think, okay, that's basically what I need to be aiming for or something like that. Mm -hmm. And no one's thinking about how they're dressed, hopefully, because no one's thinking about how I'm dressed. So again, all of these, these are prudential things though. These are all matters of wisdom. Uh, and they're also partly a question of what kind of culture are you trying to create in the specific moment you're in? How many of you have watched that movie, Jesus Revolution? Okay. I saw it. Um, I, I, th I think it's probably worth doing a whole podcast on that because it's just an interesting movie. But to reach the people that, that needed to be reached at that church, one of the things Chuck Smith does is he basically says, guess what? The hippies are welcome here. And a lot of people in the church are like, I'm not having it. I'm not going to be in a church like that. Um, but I, you, have to, you have to watch it, and I just find myself going, look, in the moment he's in, the people that he needs to reach, the, there are a lot of people that need a church to go to, and they're dressed like that. And so welcome them in. And he wasn't telling the people who were dressing up in the church, you guys can't dress up. But they wanted a church where everybody dressed up, and they wanted a church where nobody was barefoot. And uh, that's, that's what kind of ends up happening. It, it just, they end up becoming overwhelmed by the hippies in that, in that particular story. So anyway, it, it, but it lets you think a little bit about the idea of circumstances in worship, right? How should we, how should we be dressed? Um, circumstances are incidental to the elements, but they have to be decided. And this is one of the important reasons why circumstances have to be held loosely, because you have to decide something. You can't do nothing. Um, you can't refuse to decide circumstances, right? You can't decide not to set the thermostat on something. You can't decide not to decide where to meet as a church. You can't decide, you can't decide not to decide where, when to have the service. Um, but also notice this, that the further we get from the elements, you know, the further we move down through from elements to forms to circumstances... Um, the less we expect to find biblical commands directly related to it. So as we descend from the elements down to the circumstances, we expect there to be wisdom, but maybe not direct commands, right? With the forms, we want to be biblically informed as much as possible. And with the circumstances, we're convinced that there's freedom, but we should still not be foolish. We should certainly not do something that detracts from the elements of worship, um, the main priority when we're talking about elements, forms, and circumstances is we want to make sure the elements of worship are biblical. 
And we want to make sure that the forms and circumstances don't detract from the elements. Okay? Elements should be biblical. The forms and circumstances shouldn't distract from the elements. Let me give you an example. If the choir or the band drowns out the congregation and doesn't help the congregation to sing, right? That would be an example of a form, right? The band or the music overwhelming and dominating the element so that now the element is pushed down and maybe people who should be singing have trouble hearing themselves sing, right? You've probably been to churches where the music is so overpowering that voices can't be heard and singers don't know if they're even in tune. Um, Ligon Duncan, when he does his theology of worship class, talks about how he went to a church that had tons of gifted musicians, but they were jazz musicians. And so he said that they had this jazz style worship service. Um, and the people honestly did not sing because it was hard to sing to the music. And it was more about, it was more about observing the musicians playing. They're incredibly gifted, but the people couldn't sing to that. Um, I could also give an example of a kind of music that I think is really popular, even in the PCA, but I struggle to sing with it. And that's like this folk rock style of music that is in the PC, a lot of PCA churches. And I know that tons of Presbyterian churches enjoy that, um, you know, but I, I personally enjoy listening to that kind of music. I find it nearly impossible to sing it in a, cult, cult, in a corporate setting. I'm not saying that you couldn't eventually do it, but a lot of times they have notes that change up and down quickly. They don't often have quarter notes that you can that, that most people can pick up on. And so, um, you know, I have found, and this is me speaking personally. This is me talking in like terms of like forms and circumstances, not elements. But I, I find that tried and true hymnody. I think that the the hymn book that we use um, generally is very singable. Uh, usually is in a meter that most people can pick up on. I realize saying that we did two songs today. You might not have known. Um, and yet I bet if we did them another week or two, you'd probably have it down. Um, singability should be a very big priority because what? An element of one of the elements of worship is singing, right? God commands us to sing. Um, theological precision, God-centeredness need to be important considerations in what we decide to to. To sing, but again, you don't want to ignore the need for something to be singable. Whatever way we do these things, we want them to help the congregation to actually perform the element, whatever it is. They need to aid in the element and being observed. Um, if the way we're doing things hampers God's people from performing their role in worship, we should we should always be up for considering whether something is wrong or something needs to be changed. Forms of worship have freedom but within biblical, cultural, prudential bounds. Um, the contents of each element of the word must be truth as revealed in God's word. When we come back next week, yeah, when we come back next week, um, we're going to talk about what is the regulative principle. We'll actually get into it now, finally. But what we've hopefully, hopefully what I've done is at least talk this through enough that these, these don't seem like foreign words now. Uh, I want these ideas to make sense to you so that as we talk about the regulative principle, it makes sense. Um, let me close this in prayer. Again, feel free to talk to me afterward if you have more questions. Thanks for nobody stumping me today. I appreciate that. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that even as we 
We may or may not love the forms of things that we do here at Evergreen. We pray that we, we, pray that we would be uh, biblical in what we observe, and we pray that we would be gracious and open-handed and generous in the way we think about forms and circumstances. Uh, help us to be wise. Help us to be biblically guided. Um, and Lord, help for us not to be overly dogmatic about those things which we ought to be generous and loose with. At the same time, God, we realize that you care how you're worshiped. Uh, these things matter to you. And so I pray that we as a people would bring glory to your name, that we would be kind to one another. And I pray that we would please you in how we worship. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.